0: Okay, this is a long section, but I think it's actually one big thought. So I think we can cover it. But he says we, uh, we are at the heart of the letter now. And we know we're there because he says we know this. The main point, he says, is now what I'm saying. Uh, and so our understanding of this main point, is, I think, the determining factor of our understanding of Hebrews. Maybe it's our determining factor of how we understand Christianity. And so there would be two ways of taking the main point. There would be two ways of taking the book of Hebrews. One way of reading Hebrews is to say that the earthly tabernacle and temple are a copy, and that's the word used here, and I'll come back to this word that they're a copy of the heavenly reality. And so in this understanding, hey, Miguel, the real is the spiritual, the heavenly, the passage beyond the earth. That would be one reading. Uh, in another reading, the writer is saying that the earthly tabernacle and temple are a foreshadowing. He actually uses two words here. And one is sometimes translated copy the other is usually translated foreshadowing. And so in this understanding, there is not a vertical relation so much as a horizontal relationship. And what I mean by that, there, he's not describing a spiritual-physical dualism in the second understanding, but he's describing an eschatological difference. He's saying, this foreshadowed the end time this eschatological age, and we've now entered into this age. So he's different, the differentiation uh, is one that is now, uh, we've entered into the period that he's describing. Uh, so in one 3, it says, he sat down at the majesty on high. Uh, he's In 1 he repeats this, and I think we get the idea that I'm aiming at here. He says, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So he's already said the main point, now he's repeating the main point with a slight difference. And the difference, the two sentences are identical, but he's telling his listeners where it is that Jesus serves as high priest. He says Christ is enthroned in heaven in God's dwelling place. So his, th- his throne is not found in temporal, transitory spaces that would define the political rule in this world. And, uh, the, but the true priest-king is enthroned. He is found in that which is permanent. And so the word we're going to come to the word true or the word real or genuine. So what is the true, the real, the genuine tabernacle in which he serves? Well, I think it's characterized by the fact it's permanent, it's in- indestructible, it's everlasting, it's unchanging. Uh, so this is the reality, is, and it's one that's not, in other words, it's not a reality that's removed from us, like, oh, heaven is, you know, the presence of God is vertically distant from us, but what he's saying is that God has entered into a, a relationship that is predicted in this longest quote we have in Hebrews of the Old Testament, the quotation of Jeremiah from Jeremiah in which this covenant or this law is now written on your hearts and everyone will know me directly. So it says, So Christ serves as the true high priest in the holy place, which is the sanctuary or holy of holies. And the writer says this is the true tabernacle, tent. And part of the discussion here is, uh, you know, is depending on when you think Hebrews is written, uh, that he seems to be referring some places to the tabernacle, some places he, he seems to be referencing an actually existing temple that is contemporary with his readers. But this true tabernacle is made by God. It's not made by human hands. So the picture is God is enthroned. You know We know God's enthroned in heaven, but this is the only place other than Zechariah 6.13 that there is the picture of an enthroned high priest. And so if you look at the context of the Zechariah passage, and this passage, uh, Zechariah says, It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit, on, and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So this symbolic action is then in in this in the Zechariah passages expanded on uh, with reference to one called the sprout, who you know the sprout would build the house of Yahweh, uh, and the, both Zechariah six and Hebrews eight then <clears throat> are in the context of temple building, and one, you know clearly the the tent pitched by the Lord so the high priest is enthroned in heaven he's already said that in 414 and here the reference is to the uh, or rather in 414 to the great high priest 726 uh, who he's pictured as ministering in heaven or exalted above the heavens we've discussed that the the picture is that it it is the, in the presence of God. And the allusion here, he's already alluded to Psalms 110.1 and 1, three. He seems to be alluding again. His exaltation is taking place in these last days. That is, it's a, it's a reference to these days now. And the claim of 1.6 that he is exalted in the world to come. And the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying, this world has come that was predicted by Jeremiah, by Zechariah, by the Psalms. So the writer is saying the eschatological moment has arrived. This heaven is a temple in which he serves as a priest now. So the passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He quotes, you know, this is the last section here. And so the other thing, God will no longer remember their sins, that the true forgiveness is pictured in this new covenant relationship predicted in Jeremiah. And so for Hebrews, this occurs in Christ. He's saying, here is the fulfillment. He is this house. He's already said this because he is the faithful and merciful high priest. He's already said uh, that we are this house. So the the language here throughout chapter 8 is a kind of present tense. We have such a high priest. uh, He has obtained a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator of a better covenant. It is a covenant that has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Uh, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices uh, for this priest also to have something to offer. And so Christ, we've already talked about that, offers himself, but he does so today. Um, Which can be repeated with being, in other words, he's like Melchizedek. It's a today that is an ever-present moment. In the community of the saints, we have access to the Holy of Holies in a present tense sense. And the idea is that these heavenly communities, I believe, that we are participants in, is the place where we enter into this, this realm of God. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no, no more. So the idea the writer is picturing this new covenant. he's made the first obsolete. Now if you think, if he's talking about the temple, you know think of him saying but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. He may be literally you know gesturing toward the temple that, uh, and saying it's no longer legitimate. So this is the true tent not a human construction. And so the the point of this service of this high priest is not so much its location, but rather the universal reality it entails. So it's not that the heavenly sanctuary is some sort of structure that is up in heaven, uh, you know, in some spatial sense. Rather, it is the eschatological dwelling of God with his people. So the temple that God was expected to build in the last days is now in place with the exaltation of Christ if you did John with me you know the parallel understanding at the beginning of John the word became flesh in John 1.14, and tabernacles with us same word that tabernacle is one that John will refer to the The oikos the family of God Jesus goes he says I go and prepare a place for you that place, of course, I think is not a room removed you know, from us, but it's the church, it's the, the family of God. And so the writer says about this tabernacle, this you know, temple built by God, it's genuine, it's authentic, it's real, uh, it, because it's made by the Lord, and we've got to look at the language here. It is a, pent, a, a tent pitched by the Lord, so it's not eternal. Some people think, oh, he's referring to the eternal heavens. No, it's something that's made, but God made it. Man didn't make it. Um, and the contrast in who made it is the nature of the dwelling, that it's it's reality. So human sanctuaries are in some way inauthentic, And I don't think he's using that necessarily in a pejorative sense, but as in 8.5 he says the temple is a foreshadowing in the sense of looking forward. Uh, The tabernacle where God camped with his people in the wilderness was the figurative tabernacle. The Jerusalem temple is a figurative temple. I think in 8.5 he may be referencing both. In 5a the temple, in 5b the, the tabernacle and he's prefiguring, both are prefiguring the real or thought, authentic dwelling of God with his people in the eschaton, in this final age. We are now in this final age. Um, so how we read this, I think, is also how we understand the reality of our relationship to God and one another. Uh, he's, there seems to be an allusion here to Numbers 24.6, in in this, the Balaam or oracle, and the picture is, you know, the people are camping together with God in the wilderness, in the tent pitched by Moses. In Hebrews, God and his people dwell together in the true tent pitch, pitched by the Lord. Uh, that is, here is the fulfillment of Numbers 24.6. This is, I'm referencing here, a guy named Philip Church who has written his doctoral dissertation on, you know, there that some people say, oh, there's no temple in Hebrews. And his claim is, well, no, actually, that especially here in chapter 8, uh, that there is clear, he does a breakdown of the vocabulary. But he says that in 8.5a that there is a clear reference to the temple. And he, he translates the words there, that it's symbolic foreshadowing of, an, of the heavenly things as part of the polemic against he says the Jerusalem temple so it's not that the temple you know you, it, he does a thing I did you know we don't need to go into that and second temple you know Herod's temple that there is a kind of corruption but that's not what the writer of Hebrews is arguing but rather that the temple's purpose was to anticipate the eschatological dwelling of God with his people that reality has come, and this some way takes away from the importance. The temple is no longer valid or needed as the place where God is encountered. Then church goes on to say five B refers to the tabernacle, uh, but he's just, he's referencing those sanctuaries built by man, and those are in contrast to the the dwelling place built by God. Remember that what we what the way I'm. Picturing this temple is as a cosmic representation. Uh, That is, that the true temple of God is the cosmos. And so there is the idea of a symbolic foreshadowing of the heavenly that has, you know, now the cosmos is itself being fulfilled or its purpose is being fulfilled. Uh, The last thing, uh, he uses a word that uh some people translate copy. Uh, it's the word that we might get our, our word paradigm from. And Church goes into a lot of this. I won't tell you all that he says. I'll just tell you the conclusion. He says that copy is not the right translation. He says sign, token, indication, illustration, pattern. Um, and he says copy is not an appropriate rendering. And the usual understanding is that it is uh, of upodegmatai, mat matai, uh, uh, that it's an, a moral example that should either be imitated or not imitated. Uh, that will, you know, he says, uh, the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, this chapter 10, same word, a shadow of the good things to come. Uh, And there he's talking about the uh, the, in contrast to the perfect. In Colossians the same word is used. He says therefore is no one to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. So it's the shadow and then Paul goes on in Colossians to say but the substance belongs to Christ. think a similar idea here. There's the shadow. There's the you know paradigm of the illustration but now the reality has entered in it. so there is a world to come there is a heavenly country a city to come a heavenly Jerusalem good things to come and heavenly things and he says this those who have tasted the heavenly gift have also tasted the powers of the world to come so this world is come it's coming you know it's in process If if we think about truth in this way, this is sort of the way I picture Christian truth, it's in process. The heavenly things are contrasted with the earthly things that anticipate them. And so these are the eschatological realities that have come, when? With the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. Now we've come to our main point, the writer of Hidd. Hebrew says, God's dwelling is with his people in the eschaton. So it's not that the location has changed so much as the nature of the covenant. That's what he's, uh, Jesus is the mediator of a superior covenant based on superior promises. And the, we read the long section there from Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make. I will put the law in their minds. All right, and that is that we have a picture of God indwelling people. That God, that the people themselves, you know, that that remember in was it uh, chapter five? Now I've lost it. Where he says you too should be teachers. Uh, so the author of Hebrews says you're his house. You're the temple. And now he says. Uh, in the, in, uh, he's actually referencing on Psalms 40 seems to be alluding to Psalms 40 the body God prepare, prepares is Christ's body that's what sanctifies in Hebrews 10 he references so the earthly temple was a figure of the heavenly God's own dwelling place now we see the main point in the sermon only Christ's work Allows him and us to enter into the true place, where God is enthroned and not just a figure or symbol of it. That's my short introduction to Hebrews chapter eight. Let's any questions, comment before we read. Go through it again. All right. Uh, let's let's go back through it. Everybody take a few verses, Jamie. You want to start and read one and two?
1: Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man.
0: Uh, it is a tabernacle that was erected. What tabernacle has been built by God that Christ is said to reign or rule over? It's, you know, the, the earth itself, I think, is the footstool of God. The, earth, the cosmos itself is the dwelling place of God. Uh, it Notice that he sits down. He's planning to stay a while. The picture is of an ongoing ministry of this high priest. So, again, we've shifted. We've already discussed this enough. We don't need to do it more. We're not talking about simply the death of Christ. We're talking about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And that is the basis of this ministry. And this you know, holistic encompassing of the life of Christ, then, is one that is to be reduplicated, In our life, death, resurrection, hope. Alright, and then uh, Chris, you want to read verse uh, 5 and... Verse 3. Oh, I'm sorry. 3.
2: For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer.
0: Uh, go ahead with verse 4.
2: Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law.
0: So we've already done this. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the Levitical law in which you know the tribe of Judah would not be uh, among those from whom priests would be taken. So he's serving not on earth. And the significance here we, we've talked about The heavenly realm, he's serving in the reality. The earthly realm is the kind of the foreshadowing. Uh, It's not that the earthly realm is a copy of the heavenly realm, but the earthly is a temporal foreshadowing of a reality when heaven and earth will be brought together. That language may not be exactly appropriate. But the idea is that we're that we're brought, we're given access to God, and that's the meaning here of the term heaven. This is N.T. Wright's point, you know, that heaven's not the end of the world. Uh, yeah, the, the, the New Jerusalem is uh, the heavenly city that comes to earth. Uh, and so, though this sort, the the Melchizedek priesthood is. Uh, the the reality fulfilled in Christ. Then Maisie you wanna do seven and eight? Am I missing five verse Five, four, and five. six? You know, you should never look at an eclipse, have they told you that?
1: You are not
3: that.
0: Five. Five. Sorry.
3: Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain.
0: And so we, the, his actually as he explains it, he gets at a better meaning or better translation than the word copy. That is, it's a pattern or another uh, thing that church came up with. It's an illustration demonstrating how to do something. And so here is the illustration, here is the pattern. And uh, now the thing that the pattern pointed to is fulfilled. And so he says, they serve at a sanctuary in the present tense. So church argues that's the temple right down the road in which they're doing it now. And it's no longer, you know, that uh, God is uh, God's, Shekinah is his presence is no longer there. That had been long predicted, you know, by the prophets that the, about the second temple, that you know, the clearly God's glory, his Shekinah was with the first temple, but now he's saying here's the true temple, and we understand this is this heavenly uh, is a fulfillment of this illustration that we have in the earthly. And why, the point I was making there, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern, the illustration. Here is it. All right, did we do six? No. Uh, Alec, you want to do six? and Go ahead and do six.
3: But that is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as more, much more excellent
1: than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises.
0: And the, the main point that, like people like FF. F. Bruce and others have made is that the shift here, it's not a, really an argument about the heavenly against the earthly. The main point is the nature of the promise. that here is the you know, a new, the, the, uh, the covenant uh, is mediated by Christ in this instance, no longer mediated. Uh, by the Levitical priests and so in this sense you know we have direct access to God through Christ and he's the writer has used the word promises he's used this three times now I don't know if you he talks about reality and this reality God has sworn by himself that God gave Abraham better promises and so here is the fulfillment of the better promises all right, and then verse seven, Caitlin.
1: For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second.
0: Uh, he's really saying at the end of this that the temple is obsolete, that it's fading, that it's you know it's no longer of use, and uh, so the it's not that there was no efficacy in the Levitical sacrifices. They obtained a temporary measure, but now we have, you know, the difference in the covenant, as he's going to describe it from the quote from Jeremiah, is that there's now forgiveness and mercy continually available. And then, uh, why don't we do the whole uh, reading, Jake, uh, from Jeremiah.
2: But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. <laughs> After that time, to touch the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more.
0: He's saying this is that that. What was predicted then is now the case. that the the, I will put their law in their minds that is that the circumcision of the mind and heart is accomplished it's not simply a physical circumcision but it's a transformation of people I will be their God there's no shadowy mediator uh, no longer you know we don't need uh, some sort of media hierarchy of mediation between God and us as with the Levitical priests or perhaps as with the angels so the church also makes the point that whenever he's talking about when the writer or people in this period are talking about the temple angelology seems to enter into it Uh, but anyway that sort of mediation is undone they will all know me directly uh, and so we all have access there is no you know lesser and greater in regards to access to god and there is a continual you know possibility of forgiveness forgiveness you know i don't know this is this is the whole argument about resurrection life we have forgiveness and therefore no longer live under punishment of death and therefore live resurrection. And Rachel, we give you the honor of the last verse.
1: And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away.
0: That's the picture. It's present progressive. It's disappearing. It's growing old. It's, you know... um, I don't think he's telling the Jews here to convert to Christianity. I think I think he's saying to Jews, be fully Jewish, and follow Jesus, who is the true temple, the true priest. So there really is the with, uh, church argues quite long, and others do too, that there is no separation at this point between Judaism and Christianity, and so the argument of Hebrews is not take up a new religion, the argument is be a really true Jew and, you know, follow Jesus. All right, question, comment?
3: Could you say more about when it says that none of them shall teach their neighbor and then his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest?
0: I just take that as describing the reality that we have, that we all have equal access to the person and work of Christ. Uh, I don't think he's, you know, the idea is that it's not that we're uh, doing away with aiding one another in understanding, but what you have in the period of Israel is the priests and the prophets, you know, this is the way he begins, they were God's spokesmen, okay. and everybody else had to depend upon the priests and the prophets and the manners, various manners and ways that God has spoken in the times past because they didn't have direct access to God speaking. But now we all have equal access to the word which is Christ.
3: So at the very least it's dismantling that hierarchical
0: structure. I think that's it. There is no mediating hierarchy between us and God. I mean, we could, you know, what the discussion in Hebrews is that people say, "Oh, this is," you know, "he's it's Platonic or it's Philo or it's I don't know." It may be referencing uh, very. I, I think it's actually just Jewish. I think he's referring to a Jew, Jewish understanding of mediation. But what what you have in Judaism is duplicated in many religious systems in which there is a representative Mm -hmm. who goes before God or the gods or, you know, there is some... uh, that not everybody has equal access to that reality because that reality is always removed from us. Mm -hmm. So with the uh, equal access, there is a priesthood of all believers. And that's what he's argued.
3: Mm -hmm. So how does that fit in with... New Testament teachings about going before the elders or having submission to those those Christian leaders that, that you place above yourself.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that as we have, how do we have access to God? Um, how do we have access to His Word? And the way that I would say it is we have access to the Word that is Christ in and through the body of Christ in and through a body of believers. And so uh, I think we, you know, the way I state this in a kind of prosaic way is we read the Bible in the church. And what I, what I mean by that is that uh, that we do not uh, come to an un- isolated, you know, understanding of Scripture in isolation, but in conversation with the church, and the church here is the church historically, and the church in its present incarnation so I think literally we get together as a body of believers and you know if accident starts saying wild things you say wait a minute (laughs) so that's one way it happens but I think also that uh, as we are in conversation with the church you know historically and on a you know I think this is why there's great value in Studying church history, church tradition, and also in being aware of, uh, the you know the uh, what is what has been taught and handed down. So I think the eldership, the way that it's supposed to function, is that these are people who are informed about this. It's not that they have some sort of absolute. They're not the spokesman of God like the prophets and the priests, but they're they're uh, shepherds who are guiding, and not you know uh, the you know spokesman uh, who are informing of the word of God. So we all have access to that word, but I think that uh, the elders or the teachers in the church are those who can enable us to. Uh, to, to guide us into the into that word.
2: Addressing your comment, David, I just think, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but I do think there might be a problem or maybe not an ideal situation with how the American church does it from a top-down kind of thing. It's structured more of a business than like an organization. Well, I guess a business is an business but it's a very top-down structure. You climb your way to the top, and you get to the top. You have all the power. And, I mean, that's not necessarily true everywhere. And, I don't know. But that's kind of what it seems like from the inside and the outside.
3: And that certainly reflects the
0: historical church as well.
2: Right. But I think the whole point of this is saying But Christ is our priest. We don't have... There's nobody else who's more of a Christian than anyone else. There's nobody else who has more closeness with God or more love from God or more love for God or any extra spirit than anyone else. Because we're all ground level. We're all nothing without Christ. And Christ is the only reason why we have anything. Christ is the only reason why we are... Do you have any kind of significance?
3: But I I think you're right that it's the tendency of the of the church to create or substitute a hierarchy in the
1: eldership. Yeah, that is true because I know. um, I mean, I've met some pastors, and then I know that it does sometimes happen because, like, in the Methodist church, when you, um, in order to be ordained as an elder or a deacon, um, you get, uh, you have to get your Master's of Divinity. Like, you have to have that, and then if you want to get your doctor to you go for it. But um, if you, like, dr- dropped out of college and then got your G.D. or you um, went to college and you just got your Bachelor's in something, um, the highest you can go is just as a local pastor or a lay pastor, and after that, um, you have to go and get that master's if you want to be an ordained elder. And you have more votes as an ordained elder. You have more, um, um, at times, you have like the more income going in because you get placed in bigger churches. And so sometimes you can't tell where there are those pastors who kind of make themselves seem as if they are higher than other pastors or higher than the rest of the church. And some pastors notice that some um kind of just brush it off, but you do see that, even as Christians, you do see that some Christians probably think they're a little higher, or other Christians view them as better, or higher, or holier than others.
2: And we do that even with, like, subconsciously with missionaries, like, oh, those missionaries are such good Christians. Man, you're a really, man, you're a really good person for going to that. You're just a better person. You know, anytime anybody goes on a mission trip or missionaries hear that crap all the time, which isn't true. You're not any more of a Christian.
1: It still doesn't like the church needs some kind of structural, like, in order to function. I would think, maybe. Right.
3: Yeah, and also, like you were saying, like it's not that it's, it's important and necessary for there to be the leaders that are that have done study and understanding of the historical church and how even we read the word of god how why it was written like um yeah so there's still like a a balance of knowledge but just as you're saying uh it's not a it doesn't mean there's a there's a difference in the person, but there's a respect for a person who spent the time to understand these things and to communicate them. Um, that doesn't mean that there's a different value as a child of God. But historically, yeah, I don't know. The church does have does have the the leadership and the, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's hierarchical in the same way that we've made things in the US at our, or business in general but there's got to be some, some kind of Well and I think like you said, there is a structure there, it's just the difference is that it's instead of a structure of exclusion, it's a the structure of inclusion through, through shepherding yeah. instead of access or lack of access. Yeah, that's a good
0: point. Mm-hmm. I I mean I I the more I think about this, and I can't claim to have done some grand study, but actually there are studies that have come out that I uh, that more and more people are arguing that what you actually have in the New Testament are house churches, and that there really is no bishop uh, until, you know, fairly late that would have any authority uh, outside of the house church that he's serving in. Uh, I think that's a workable model uh, that, uh, and I think that the degree that I, 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 don't, I haven't come up with another word because, I mean, everything's an institution in a sense, but uh, but the more institutionalized, the more hierarchical it seems like that it comes to a point that the institution in some way displaces the importance of the people. And I think as long as there's these small house churches in which the leadership is very local, I don't think we're talking about lots of people in any of these letters that people are being addressed. And so I think that what that does, it creates a kind of immediate interpersonal relationship. You know, I can't imagine that the guy who's the elder of the church in Colossae doesn't know the names of the people or you know is not personally acquainted with all these people, and I think you could just go right on through and say that's probably what's being taking place. Alec, you probably know more about this. Okay, <laughs> maybe not, but. Uh. No more about like what's there to add to that anyway. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just said it all. <laughs>
3: but also, did mention like Paul. Is still connecting all of these churches, you know, like he mentions each of these these groups to the other, to other groups. So like there's, you know, even even though yeah, the meetings and the fellowship is there, there's an acknowledgement of of the other the other people and the probably some continuity in the Yes,
0: yeah, and so that's what the, that's what Paul is struggling. The writers of the New Testament are struggling to maintain. Mm-hmm is this unity yeah. based upon a shared understanding. Right. And so that's the, the New Testament is not a creation of churches. The New Testament is a document written uh, to maintain already established communities of people. I think that's an important idea. We can't do this thing, I think is another way of saying it, that it is, a, it is a house built by God. Sometimes I don't think God built that house. But I think that, that uh, what the you know, New Testament is describing is the authentic reality. The, the the fellowship, the temple, the heavenly community is established in and through the, the gift of